Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. He's an author. He is a uh, veteran. Uh, he's done a, a lot of things in his life, and one of the things that's uh, one of the coolest things that I can think of he's doing right now. His name is Sean Hamilton. He's an author. He's uh, written the book, When Your Partner Says uh, Hashtag Me Too, Your Role and Responsibility in Their Recovery Process. And uh, we met uh, last week or the week before, and I, I said, I've, I've got to get you on the show. I just do. Because you, this is important. This is an, as important a topic as I can think of because it affects, well, 50% of the population is women, and it affects some men too, um, and it affects a lot of folks. And um, But the person that I've never, ever, ever heard anybody talk anything about is the partner of the individual that has been abused and has, and has faced those things. And then it comes to light that the partner is as deeply involved with all of that um, and all of that trauma as anybody else. But I've never heard anybody talk about it. So you, it, and uh, Sean is a uh, survivor of that sort of abuse as well. So Sean, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you, Kevin, for having me. Um, I'll just clear up one thing. Uh, I'm actually not a survivor of the abuse myself. I am just a partner uh, to a survivor who um, I've been now a partner multiple times in my life. So I just wanted to clear that up and not um, uh, not that, you know, there's anything wrong with it. It's just just want to be honest out the gate. Well, what I wanted to and and I knew that, but what I was trying to and I, I probably said it very poorly. <laughs> excuse me but what i was trying to say was that the partner of somebody who has been abused by extension has mm -hmm. been abused as well because it has inadvertently or advertently hurt your life and the the partner's life as well because it turns everything upside down so when i say that you're a victim that's that's in in the framework that i'm talking about does that make sense mm -hmm. No, that's 100% accurate. I feel that the secondary trauma of it is a real uh, is a real thing for a lot of people out there experiencing the recovery process, kind of shoulder to shoulder in the trenches. Um, it it really is a, a very impactful experience, um, both good and bad. And there there's a lot of challenges that come with that. So yeah, absolutely. I think that that's spot on that the secondary trauma is a real thing. So I want to get this out uh, often today. April is, um, tell me what month of April is again. So April is, um, you know, kind of one of those national uh, awareness months for sexual violence and sexual assault. And it, it kicks off April 1st, as well as April 5th is kind of this big call to action day. So, yeah. And so that, so you are going to participate with, there's a group that you're working with. Uh, what's the name of the group? Uh, the Institute for Survivors of Sexual Violence. It was founded by Dr. John Connolly, who also founded uh, Rapid Resolution Therapy, which is, I believe, one of the best therapy modalities uh, in existence today. I think that I've seen it firsthand help thousands and thousands of people get out of trauma, but even more so than that, like dramatic in my life is it is credited as saving my wife's life. Um, Kristen Revis, she is my wife and she did a TED talk in, in Seattle um, in 2013 about the life-changing power of words in which she went into how rapid resolution therapy uh, saved her life. It brought her back from the brink. Um, she was experiencing seizures up to nine times a day. She was in a wheelchair, uh, wearing a helmet. She was experiencing all sorts of neurological breakdowns and symptoms like dystonia and narcolepsy and Tourette syndrome, as well as uh, a whole slew of other things. She was a patient of the Mayo Clinic for over two years. And anything that those doctors and nurses and teams of medical professionals tried to throw at it, it would only exacerbate and make her symptoms worse. 
And it wasn't until she got in to see Dr. Connolly uh, for one two and a half hour session of rapid resolution therapy, and she has been seizure free and symptom free uh, for over 15 years now. And that includes uh, not relapsing after the two sexual assaults that she's experienced in her life. And, you know, rapid resolution therapy played a very large part in helping her through that recovery process as well. So it's a it's a therapy modality that I will scream from the rooftops. And I'm really proud to be working with the ISSV um, in raising a bunch of money through the you know month of April through this book launch of when your partner says, hashtag me too. Uh, we're doing a, a 50% um, kind of share of all revenue generated in the month of April goes to the ISSV um, so that we can help provide pro bono uh, therapy sessions for survivors of sexual violence through the ISSV. Um, the ISSV is made up of a whole lot of therapists and rapid resolution therapists, and, um, and they, they like to really give back to the community of survivors of sexual violence. So I'm really proud to, to work with them through this uh, kind of campaign launch. Well, and April is going to be a big month, I think. It's going to be important. It's, it's going to be really important. Now, let me ask you, though, um, when did you meet your lovely wife? She wasn't in a wheelchair with a helmet on when you met her, I assume. That is true. Um, no, I met her shortly after I got out of the Navy in Seattle, and we became friends. Um, and I actually got to see her give her TEDx talk in Seattle live which was really awesome and then celebrate afterwards. And we'd just been friends for probably four or five years. Um, and then, you know, we were both single at the same time, kind of going through our horror stories of online dating. And we were just kind of together one day riding around in the car, just talking about some of the, the more funny ones that we had and some of the more tragic ones. And uh, we, we just kind of looked over at each other and we're like, you know, we share the same values. What if, what if this could work out? And uh, you know, kind of, all these years later, we're uh, it's 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 one of the best relationships I've ever had. So it's yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a journey for sure. And well, you know, a part of that journey, I think, was the fact that she got sexually assaulted two weeks into us actually officially starting to date, um, which just brought with it a whole lot of challenges. Which is kind of where this book came from. Now you're a guy. You're I mean, you were in the Navy and and. By the way, thank you for your service. Absolutely. Um, did you ever and it, did you ever stop to think that this the Me Too movement and what is behind it, the sexual assault, um, was as prevalent as it was as it is? Did that did, when you were younger? Did that ever cross your mind? Yeah. Well, so the first time that I experienced being a partner of a survivor of sexual violence, I was 15 years old. So oh, in, I think that was 1998. I met my first girlfriend in high school and she had experienced a whole lot of child abuse and as well as intimate partner violence and, uh, you know, kind of being a survivor of sexual assault at that point in her life. Um, and so in that relationship, it all started to kind of come out. So it was my first like real understanding that this issue was a real thing. And not only that, but like how it impacted my life, it impacted our relationship. I saw her recovery process and all the pain and suffering that she was going through trying to get on the other side of that. And it wasn't until kind of like years later, like that was kind of the, the, the start of my understanding of what was going on. And before the Me Too movement actually like really became like real, you know, in the media and kind of all this exposure, I was actually speaking in high schools, you know, using music there in uh, Washington State, actually at uh, in Tumwater at Challenger High School. I had gone and spoke there a couple of years in a row um, at the art class using a song that I had written about my first girlfriend's experience. And the, what happened in that classroom was that three or four kids out of every single class I've spoken at, like dozens and dozens of classes now, every time three or four kids would stand up to talk about their experiences with sexual violence. And it was at that point that I realized that this problem is really a lot worse than we think it is and a lot worse than that is being exposed. Um, and it is, uh, you know, I was born and raised in Texas and it was affecting me 20 years ago in my high school. And then, you know, almost 1500 miles away in Washington state, 20 years later, I'm in a high school and it's affecting so many kids. Um, you know, I can only 
imagine that if we were to continue asking these questions throughout high school and getting the honest feedback, that this is a really, a really prevalent issue for sure. And, and you know, I, when I think about it and I go, we talk about the Me Too movement and, and, and people that have been sexually abused and stuff, but I wish we'd talk about the abuser more mm. and we were to go and, um, I don't know if help is the right word, but to, to get them to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing, that they're hurting people. Um, and I, you know, one of these days, maybe we'll have a um, stop the abuser month or something like that. <laughs> yeah. That would, you know, cause that, that, that's, isn't that the root cause of all of this is it stems from, and it may be generational in, in, you know, my dad did it to my mom or, you know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But it's got to stop at one point. Don't you think? I, I I agree. I agree that we have to put a stop to it. I would um, I, I tend to think about it in terms of I'm not sure that there's a one size fits all answer, which makes it really difficult to approach from a uh, kind of a systematic and institutional way, because it seems that bureaucrats and people that are making laws and policy, they like things to be like nice and neat. And unfortunately, this particular uh, yeah, this is real messy because it's, you know, absolutely it has to do with an abuse cycle for some. Um, others, it's a conditioning from society and how we view uh, women. And there's so many other variables in which play into environments that exist. I think looking at one of the one of the nastiest things that I came across in my research was just the problem of pedophilia and child abuse. And the way that our media kind of talks about it is uh, it, it's it's just not valuable in my mind because of the fact that the problem is so much worse than what they're even talking about. They like to kind of, again, keep it, you know, in this nice, neat package of sensationalism where they can talk about it, you know, from the, you know, like QAnon, for example, they created that conspiracy around it being like Hillary Clinton and George Soros out of some pizza parlor. And it's like... But the media still talks about it in this way of like, it's like some sort of satanic cults, which is where the big problem of pedophilia is. And unfortunately, the research just does not support that because the research makes the problem a lot bigger and a lot worse and a lot closer to home than a lot of people I think are willing to sit and look at. Because, you know, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, the fifth edition that the psychological community has given us, talks about pedophilia uh, being a disorder that affects 5% of the kind of overall population of men globally. And that number becomes really large when we think about the amount of men that exist in the world today. And just kind of rough math, that puts it at around somewhere in the ballpark of 200 million that are affected with this uh, pedophilia. So what that really means when we start to look at it and, you know, uh, really kind of zoom in on this one particular aspect of sexual violence and sexual abuse, we look at it and go, any organization on the planet that gives adults access to children is going to have a problem with abusers trying to infiltrate their organization. That is a lot of people who have a desire and a predilection to meet their sexual needs with young children who can't meet that sexual need in any other way, normal way. So they have to find the darkness and the shadow and the environments in which that will allow them to exist in. And unfortunately, what we've seen in just the history of it is organizations like the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts of America, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, sports organizations, and you know other places that give adults access to children have all historically had really big problems. And very early on, I mean, you know, the Boy Scouts, ten years into their formation, were already starting to keep files on thousands of pedophiles within their ranks. And it took over a hundred years for that to come to light and for them to implement changes to put a stop to that environment. And so I think the problem is a lot worse than we're really as a society willing to look at. And that's, that's hopefully why I'm out here screaming about it just so that we can, you know, kind of point a spotlight on a bunch of different areas. Cause I think that in order to change and focus on the abuser, we can't, you know, we, 
we can't just think of it in terms of just like one size fits all answer because there there are a lot of complex variables to this situation. Well, and when you are a pedophile and you're going after an easy target, I mean, it's it, kids. Kids are not going to say stuff. You can scare them. You can all. I interviewed a gentleman who's an actor in uh, Vancouver, and he went to a Catholic school, and now the Catholic schools are are closing in in uh, in um, Canada because of the amount of abuse that was there, and it's affected his entire life. It affected his marriage. It affected how he lived, and it started when he was like six. The kid didn't even have a shot, and it's it's a terrible thing. And we and I applaud you for that and to bring that up because that is one of those dirty little secrets that we kind of put underneath the rug that we don't because it's it is horrific. It yeah. is worse than that. You know, and it's it's just something that we don't want to that the nice people don't want to talk about, but it exists. No, I mean, it's a really, really challenging aspect of this to look at. I mean, we create shows like To Catch a Predator and think that, you know, or Law and Order SVU, where we think that there is like a Detective Stabler and Olivia and Ice T's out there kicking down doors, taking predators off the street. And unfortunately, uh, it, it's just not like that at the, you know, at the level that we need it to stop the overwhelming amount that it's happening. And one of the really difficult aspects that I found when even just kind of zooming into this issue, uh, even, you know, kind of more than the overwhelming number that there is kind of out there, is that when we look at the FBI statistics around child abuse just here in America, um, a lot of it is coming from the home. It's coming from the family. It's coming from dads and brothers and grandfathers and uncles and, you know, and that becomes increasingly difficult to stop because, you know, when we, when we discuss this concept of rape culture and we've kind of like teased it a little bit here talking about organizations, but it's this concept that comes up a lot in this conversation. And I think it gets, uh, you know, it gets a bad rap because of the political ideology and the division we have uh, in our kind of public discourse at the moment. But if we were to stop and take a look at just that phrase and what it means, uh, and we were to, rather than place it on a country, right, rather than trying to think about it in this really large kind of idea, let's break it down to the very small microcosm of it and realize that a rape culture is present around an individual like celebrities like Harvey Weinstein and uh, Bill Cosby, um, people like Larry Nasser at USA Gymnastics, right? Like there was, there was rape cultures that are, were around him, an environment that was created that kind of knew about the abuse, allowed the abuse to continue for a long time. And even there are people within that space that benefit from, uh, you know, this environment kind of existing. And so when we break it down even smaller, we have to realize that, you know, fear and manipulation and coercion at a family level, when there are people, you know, kind of in the family unit that are, you know, operating with this sense of, you know, domination through fear and manipulation and control, whether through financial means or physical threats of violence, they create an environment around them in which, you know, becomes a rape culture. They, uh, you know, people in and around their sphere know that this abuse is happening, but there's not really much that's being done. And whether that is a conscious or an unconscious kind of thing that's happening, uh, the statistics are talking about it being very, very prevalent. And just in my time in the high school talking to kids, uh, more often than not, the story was not some, you know, oogie boogie stranger jumping out of the shadows. You know, it was a family member. It was somebody that they knew and trusted that had, you know, taken advantage of a situation. And oftentimes it was uh, over a, a number of years. And, you know, I think that as you spoke about that person you had on who was abused in the in the Catholic school at, at an early age, we have to look at that in terms of, you know, a system like a systemic problem, an institutional problem where they know that this abuse is going on, like Catholic clergy abuse has been going on for decades. And there is so much evidence about the cover up all the way to the top. And that is an environment that predominantly impacts young boys. And the Boy Scouts was an organization that specifically targeted young boys. And so 
this is why I want to break people outside of their ideologies sometimes when we talk about this is because this isn't just like a man versus woman thing. This is not a phrase. Rape culture is not a phrase that was just created by the 1970s feminist movement. It's actually a phrase that talks about environments that the threat of rape is real and present and there is nothing really being done to prevent it. The deterrents go away. Um, an author that I really uh, admire and appreciate, and I read you know, many of his works while I was researching this book is Jackson Katz. And he is a really incredible voice in this kind of, uh, in this space. And he wrote this book called The Macho Paradox in which he talks about this exercise that he does with men and women in a group setting where he'll split the room in half. He'll talk about, he'll ask the men, you know, guys, what do you do on a regular basis to prevent yourself from being raped or sexually assaulted? And it's met with crickets. Oh, and yeah. it's like everybody's silent in the room. The men are like, what? There's kind of this awkward silence until somebody says, uh, go, you know, don't go to prison. And so he, you know, on his whiteboard, he draws a line and men, he goes, okay, don't go to prison. And then, you know, he goes over to the women and goes, okay, women, you know, ladies, what do you do on a daily basis to prevent yourself from being sexually assaulted or raped? And then out of that, this laundry list, the hands just go up all over the room and women are just, you know, this, that, and the other thing. They just do so many things on a daily basis to prevent themselves from being attacked. And I think it identifies though, not only the disparity between, you know, the reality that women face on a daily basis and what, you know, and the kind of mindset that men have in the society and the threats that we experience, but I think what it does also is highlight this, this really key concept in that it's not that men can't identify a rape culture because they can identify a rape culture in which affects men. Don't go to prison. And why is that so known in our society? Is because if men go to prison, the threat of rape or sexual assault is real. It's known institutionally and the deterrent for it isn't really there. Most of the, you know, like everybody in jail is already in jail. A lot of them may be in jail for life. And so it, what is another life sentence on top of a life sentence in that space, right? Like, so there's not, there's not a deterrent to help prevent that threat. And so that is a, a rape culture in which men can identify with. And I think that's a powerful example. I think that's something that a lot of people, a lot of men should sit with and just recognize that it's like, oh, okay, this concept of rape culture isn't, it's not some sort of feminist idea. It's really a phrase that just identifies, you know, aspects of environments that the threat of this type of violence is real and present. Even to the extent that I have another it, it, it's amazing since i've been doing this work uh, sean by the way we're talking with sean hamilton he's written the book uh when your partner says a hashtag me too your role and responsibilities in the recovery process he's becoming an, an advocate for for people who may not be able to speak for themselves and i applaud what you're doing um but since i've been doing this work you have no idea the number of people that i have talked to that have been sexually assaulted, sexually abused. One of them was, her family was deeply involved in a well-known religion. He was a beacon in, in this particular church. So he was above, considered above reproach. Hmm. And he abused her when she, when she was an early teen. Um, how does someone, do you, someone recover from that? It, it, it becomes a lifelong a deal that they have to deal with and and to then poo-poo it and to say oh come on it's not that big a deal she probably shouldn't have worn that dress or she shouldn't have done what she did and that's just that's just out of out of the realm of of sanity in my in my opinion um, no i couldn't agree more and i i i one thing in the book that I like to address like right out of the gate is really trying to identify, help people really understand the holistic nature that this crime really is against somebody's humanity, right? This attack, this assault on somebody, it affects them at every level of their being and just their experience as a human being, right? It affects their physical body. It affects their mental and emotional well-being. It affects their understanding, their spiritual place in the world, which only gets exponential if like in that 
girl's case, it's done by somebody who she views as an authority and kind of a, a conduit to the spirituality, right? And that happens to so many people. But it also can, you know, even if it's not done by some member of a church, it still kind of shakes somebody's foundational belief that, you know, bad things shouldn't happen to good people. And, you know, there was supposed to be this higher authority that I felt like was on my side. And they allowed this really incredibly bad thing to happen. And so it can, it, it can just shatter that worldview and belief system. And then we move, you know, kind of into the realm of safety and security, the agency and autonomy that somebody has over their life, like that gets drastically you know, diminished and altered in a very bad way that has to get rebuilt. And the trust they have for themselves, the trust they have for other people, you know, their their finances are deeply impacted with uh, oftentimes a lot of time off of work. Uh, they can't actually maintain gainful employment. The amount of money it costs to go to doctors, uh, to go to the hospital, to get the, you know, get the treatment that they need at the very beginning, but then the ongoing, you know, uh, mental health that they are going to have to battle. There's, you know, so much evidence that just speaks to the increase in the, the stress that they experience, the PTSD, which leads to heightened risks for all the different types of, you know, chronic health disease and diabetes and autoimmune dysfunction and all sorts of other things. And so when we look at that and then also, the aspect of somebody's intimacy and their desires for sexuality and closeness and connection, uh, that aspect of their life, like we can see this holistic impact that this particular crime has on an individual. And when we approach the recovery process, we really have to approach the recovery process in that same holistic way to make sure that each one of these areas is being addressed. And I think that, you know, that's really when we when we consider that it's 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 difficult for for somebody if they really truly acknowledge that this has happened and that all of these areas of somebody and their human experience have you know taken this incredibly huge hit to look at it and just be like oh that's no big deal like no it's a it's a really big deal if 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 you've been around anybody surviving this and recovering from this it is a huge deal it they're you know, this is not some sort of make-believe thing. This is a this is a real, deep, uh, lasting trauma. So much so that there are some people that bury it so deep that they don't even remember the episode until it comes up years later. And because it because it's it's less painful to hide it and to just bury it than it is to deal with it. But it comes it comes up in all kinds of different ways in the course of that period of time that they don't even associate with it because they buried it. But the things that come up, health challenges, uh, relationship challenges, all of those things, they, they, they happen. So I want to get back though, to you, you and your, um, your beloved, I'm sorry, pronounce your name for me again, because I'll screw Kristen. Kristen. Okay. You and Krista were together a couple of weeks and then and then she was had this she was attacked again. And yeah. is that when her health just um declined rapidly from then on until you got in got the help that you got from from the um uh, doctor that you went to? Um yeah, she so she was attacked and it was, you know, kind of by this quote friend of hers that had been in her life for quite a while. And, you know, she was really good friends with this guy and his wife and this big community of people. And it turns out that he had actually uh, sexually assaulted six or seven other girls in this friend group. And my wife, when this all came out, decided that she was going to be the last one. And so we, you know, immediately were sitting in court. We filed criminal charges and civil charges and uh, six other women came forward to file, you know, kind of their public testimony and file charges and, you know, kind of file this case against this guy. And uh, it, we experienced the overwhelming trauma that the legal process around this type of violence is because it's it's cold, it's uh, compassionless. Uh, there is a giant void of safety and security and just uh, thoughtfulness and empathy towards the survivor's experience throughout the entire process. It's, you know, this is a, this is a deeply... 
uh, scarring and troubling experience that they've been through. And immediately you have to start sharing these really intimate details about your life, as well as really traumatic details about your life with all these strangers, most of which are kind of cold and sterile, some police officers and things like that. And they they don't really have the, the training necessary. There's not a whole lot of, you know, trauma-informed personnel leading these types of, uh, you know, investigations and questionings. And so that was kind of a, a, a secondary trauma in itself, is just going through that process. And then the letdown of the justice system so often, right? And so many people have the same story. And the King County Prosecutor's Office dropped the case against the guy who then, you know, uh, no we were not surprised. Uh, I mean, we were surprised that the, that they dropped the case. We were infuriated, right? That was a very maddening experience. But what we weren't surprised about was that this guy was a kind of calculated predator. And so when he was just dismissed, he went off and continued to his, his abuse just in other groups. Uh, and we, you know, kind of heard through the grapevine that he was just continuing this horrible behavior. And, you know, I can't help but put that responsibility at the, you know, at the feet of our, you know, system of justice that just betrays so many people through this process. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of the immediate aftermath. And so there was a lot of, uh, pain and, and suffering that was going on. And the recovery process was in the acute phase. And we did, we got her in to see um, a rapid resolution therapist to help kind of move the needle a little bit on how she was processing a lot of that trauma. And it really was a, a huge benefit to our recovery process and our ability to um, work through it together. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I would... I would credit rapid resolution therapy uh, with a with a huge uh, win in my book in terms of the uh, reduction of overall suffering and how quickly uh, it actually takes effect. Like it's a it's a very it's a very quick therapeutic process. It's not this long drawn out go to therapy for twenty years type of thing. It's uh you know go in a session, two sessions, three sessions, and we, we can move the needle. It was now, I haven't heard of that. Um, educate me a little bit. Uh, rapid resolution therapy. Yeah. Uh, what, what do they do during their, the sessions? So it is a therapeutic modality that is uh, based around um, a lot of hypnotherapy, a lot of neuro-linguistic programming. Uh, it's a very precise use of language and it's really focused on the power of being able to help the mind rewire and reassociate um, how it's processing these kind of data clumps really is what it's all boiling down to. And again, I'm not a, a professional rapid resolution therapist. I just have some of the vocab. So if people are, are really looking into it, please look into Dr. John Connolly and rapid resolution therapy. Um, but it's a... It, it is absolutely, in my view, a, a miracle modality. This, this man has created and, and brought to the world such a powerful healing tool, um, you know, and that's why thousands of therapists all over the world are, you know, still seeking to get trained. Um, he's offering trainings all the time. And we're, you know, I'm proud to help him spread that message and mission, uh, especially in the realm of, you know, kind of this particular recovery. But you know, my wife's been using this to help herself in so many different areas, and I've watched her use it, um, you know, and help thousands of people. So it's it's really powerful. But yeah, it uses it uses hypnotherapy, it uses neuro linguistic programming to help the mind uh, change how it's processing the the data from different experiences and how it's uh, you know thinking about things, the framework in which people have built uh, the thought processes around different uh, things that have happened in their life. It's cool that you mentioned that because it is now just coming to light. This is kind of all new stuff because um, they're finding out that you can actually rewire the brain, mm. that the, the, the brain as it has been uh, damaged over time does not have to stay damaged. It can be rewired using NLP and using other modalities and stuff. So that's, that's, that's really cool. It, you don't happen to have his information just lickety split on you if somebody wants to find him, do you? Um, Ooh, 
what is it? Rapid. I don't actually, but I need to, I need to know the website. I, I think it's rapid resolution therapy. Just, just look it up. If it's, if it'll com. just yeah. Google rapid resolution therapy and it, it'll, it'll show up. If you feel like, like you can benefit from that, then, then use that. How, how is she today, by the way? Uh, she's doing well. Yeah. She's, she's doing well. Um, she is, um, Oh, sorry, I I lost you. I'm still here. Oh, there we go. Okay, sorry. Um, no, she's doing really well. She's uh, she's you know she got back to doing therapy. She's you know got a full schedule. People are you know people love working with her, and she loves the work that she does. Um, you know, and we we've recovered our relationship. It's it's just been a really uh, it's been a really difficult, challenging time. Uh, through the recovery process, but now we're kind of, now we're on the other side of it and really, you know, I don't know that the word is excited because it's hard to like feel excited in this space when you're talking about this type of heavy work, but I am hopeful that we can get this message out to a lot of people so that they know that the time in which they spend in suffering does not have to be forever. It doesn't have to be this long process. It doesn't have to be painful. I think that's one of the things that uh, Kristen talked about in her TED talk about, um, you know, getting healed those many years ago was that she felt like having to go through the process of dealing with the traumatic grief uh, around her sister's death uh, due to the actions of a drunk driver was going to be this like very arduous process of healing from this deep trauma of showing up to the accident scene and, you know, just seeing the kind of horrors that that was, she was really afraid that it was going to be something really traumatic. Like, you know, a lot of different talk therapies kind of just make you talk about what it, what it was like there. And it just wasn't that it was, she said that it was, she spent the most of the time laughing and uh, it was a very enjoyable process. And then by the end, she's running around the, you know, therapy room backwards, which is one of the big things that used to cause her to have seizures all the time. And so she felt free for the first time in years. And, you know, so I can't, you know, I, I can't speak high enough of that. You know, I got to tell you, I believe and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you had a bunch of this stuff happen to you because you have been given a mission. And that mission is to, is to, um, is to bring light to the world about um, your book and about the struggles and, and, and to really help people get over what they're doing. And you've got the complete package. Not only do you have, you know, you can identify the issues and the problems, but you also have got a treatment uh, that will work for, and I'm, it sounds like it'll work for a lot of folks. Um, now, I do have a question for you from um, from Mar Dr. Marnie. Sean, a rapid resolution therapy sounds way, very interesting. As a domestic abuse survivor who is focused on healings, finding my voice through writing books, I realized the value of neuro-linguistics. Um, would you agree with that? And, and do you have anything to add to that? No, uh, I, Marnie, I, I really appreciate the comment. And I, I completely agree with you uh, that rapid resolution therapy is interesting and that the value of neurolinguistics is an incredibly powerful tool that, you know, I've seen just so many people get benefit from. Um, I love that you found your voice through writing books. Because uh, I, I identify with that as well, um, and uh, I, again, I I thank you for sharing the your your survivor uh, journey. Um, I, I I wish you the most in your healing in your healing journey. And uh, what is this coming through? It says it's it's mind boggling that there is so much injustice in our court system. <clears throat> Any advice for those in continual legal struggles? I wish I had advice. I it's it, there was there was a time where we were sitting there and both my wife and I wish that we actually hadn't even gone through that process. Um, to get let down like that was, uh, was just so disheartening that it actually kind of set back in a lot of ways, the recovery process that we had been making. Uh, it was just such a giant, um, emotional, uh, 
devastation um, in a lot of ways. It kind of it kind of shattered the idea that um, you know, and it, it just brought it to it, it just brought it home, I guess, in a real way. You always hear we we heard about it. You hear about it all the time that this is a this is a crime that is one underreported, but two, when you take it to the legal system. They continually let you down. Uh, you know, I think we we saw through, um, you know, a whole lot of that time that we were going through this was a lot of the, uh, you know, Donald Trump's Access Hollywood tape came out in October, like basically like right during that moment is when the King County Prosecutor's Office dropped the case. And just to hear how the public responded to, you know, that tape was, it was just disheartening that there's just so much nastiness around this and that people that survive this and go through it aren't believed. And it's, it's just such a hard time. And so I wish I had advice about dealing with the legal system, but, um, I, I would love to work with like, like-minded think tank about how we could approach solving this, uh, problem privately because I think one of the biggest things that I saw through the legal system and through just, you know, the hospital, the medical care, uh, the, you know, my wife's first assault, she went through the whole process of getting a rape kit done and everything. And the, the hospital lost the rape kit. And oh, then, no. uh, uh, an article came out about King County and how they had 6,500 rape kits that are just sitting in a backlog somewhere. I and, read that. Yeah. And then there was a huge, there was a huge documentary about the fact that now there's 200,000 or, you know, quarter million or the number's crazy rape kits that are sitting in backlog across the country. And yet it's that one thing that people always in public discourse seem to go to in terms of, oh, well, did you go get a rape kit done? And that's like this key thing that they need in order to kind of believe a survivor's story about whether or not this actually happened. It's like, well, why didn't you go do this? Why didn't you go do that? And it's just this, I think people that ask that have no idea. They haven't put themselves in a situation in which you've had this incredibly horrific trauma. And then the idea of it is like, oh, go get a rape kit done. Because rape kit, it, it doesn't really spell out what the actual um, circumstances and the event is. It's a very traumatic experience, especially for someone who's just been traumatized. So to be in a cold, sterile room with a bunch of strangers poking at your genitals, like while you're getting blood drawn because you were drugged the night before, and then to have this system of authority lose it, so that you don't have any evidence to go to court with, like that's that's the mind-boggling aspect of our legal system as it pertains to this particular situation. And it's because we're putting all of this pressure and stress on systems that are already stressed out. Cops, they already have so many calls that they have to attend to, and they're not really trained trauma therapists. They're not trained in specially like how to show up to these situations and treat survivors. I mean, when the, when my wife, you know, had the cops show up at her house the, the, the morning after she was, you know, attacked, they sent a rookie like hours and hours and hours and hours later, who was like, had no clue what he was doing. And so like, what I would love to see is like some sort of privatized institution that we can handle and they get the call. So if a, if a call comes in, they contract with, and they send professionals out, they send therapists, they send, you know, uh, medical professionals and nurses, a team of people that are trained and care that around this so that like they show up, you don't have to go into some sterile space. You can, you're like, you know, some sort of environment, like a hospital, they show up, they, they help take care of these people. They collect the data that they need and then immediately get that data filed so that we can stop with this backlog because it's like we're putting a strain on a system that is already overstressed and overwhelmed in so many different areas. And it's horrible that all of these survivors are the ones that get hit. They're the ones that fall through the cracks. And then that aspect of it falling through the cracks is what's used as kind of the arsenal against them as to like why they didn't go through the process in the first place. So now they're not believed. And it's just this cascading impact that just creates so much trauma for the survivor and everybody in their nuclear environment. Because let's face it, the partner's not the only one that's going to suffer uh, the kind of secondhand trauma. I mean, it's friends, it's family members, it's coworkers, like everybody, it, it ripples out into their entire life. And so 
you know, if we're not thinking about this as a holistic aspect of society, like we're, we're not thinking about this right. And, you know, that's just the reality. And I think it needs to change for sure. You know, I'll tell you, the interesting thing about that is there are thousands of rape kits that are sitting around now with the state of DNA testing nowadays. That means that there's DNA in those rape kits that can tie, tie to somebody who is committing these horrific things and it's just sitting on a shelf and those people are free, able to do whatever they are continuing to do. Yeah. And what I find crazy is that I, here's what's nutty about the whole thing. If we think about it logically is that I can order something online, swab my cheek or take a blood sample or whatever, send it away to a lab and I can get pretty much any test results immediately almost in my mail and in my uh, email, right? Like we can we can do 23andMe and find out our entire genealogy. We can connect all of this and we can do this online. And yet for some reason, rape kits end up in some archaic warehouse just sitting there. Like it doesn't make any sense with the technology that exists. It's like s- something somewhere is broken. Obviously, the system needs to change and we need some kind of connect piece that comes in and goes, here's a solution to this problem, because there's there has to be a solution to this problem. I I, I refuse to believe that with the technology and the advances that it is right now, that I can put a little adapter thing on my arm with my cell phone and I can check my blood sugar live that like we don't have anything that can test DNA from a rape kit like super quick. I I don't I, I just don't believe that. I'll give, I'll give you an example. I, I knew a guy that he was, I knew him when he was a cook in a restaurant. And the next time I saw him, he was being led away in handcuffs um, because he had just been convicted of murder because they sent him a, um, a uh, he, you've won this big prize. All you need to do is lick the envelope and send it, send the, your information back and you're going to, you know, get $10,000 or whatever it was. It was the FBI. And they took they took the envelope and the saliva that he licked the envelope with was enough to convict him of killing an 11 year old girl 15 years before that. And it was so that that cold case was solved that we could be doing that all over. And, it you know, nowadays it used to be may. All right. It's expensive. It's not expensive anymore. You can you can find out your relatives from, you know, generations and and. It, it doesn't cost very much. So I agree. Right. With and that, that's where, that's where I think that they're like, when I start to question this, I don't like getting my tinfoil hat on too often, but like when it comes to the research and the weird environment that exists around just the kind of like global concept of, you know, sexual violence and how we address it, there, there is some weird like opposition that comes up when you start trying to like ask questions about it and trying to figure out why the system is designed this way. And all of a sudden at some sort of institutional level, people start dragging their feet as if like, like, like change just can't happen. And I'm like, no, change can happen. It can happen real quick. And we can, you know, like what you were saying, you can find out your genealogy real fast and it's super cheap. So why is there not when we know that this big ass problem exists, why is there not something that has already come about? And I would love to see it. I, I would, I would champion it so much that well, I, I can, Sean, I can tell you this. And by the way, we're talking with Sean um, Hamilton. He's written the book. I get the book, please. April is, is a great month to do it. The fifth through the, the 10th or whatever. Um, and uh, when your partner says, uh, hashtag me too. your role and responsibility in the recovery process. That's the name of the book. Uh, pick it up, please. Um, because it's, it's, it's an important, it's an important work. And I'll tell you, putting my, my, <laughs> my, um, uh, tin hat on, I can tell you that, uh, I think that there's a lot of reasons why those tests are just sitting on the shelf. One of which is nobody really wants to find out the answers. I, I agree. I think that there, and this is what, okay. So when we were talking about rape cultures, uh, my, my big kind of pushback to the opposition is I just want to ask the question, who benefits from rape cultures existing? 
Because if we ask that question and we start getting opposition and we start feeling like this is something that somebody doesn't want to solve, then this is what it just becomes very obvious. It's like, you know, the tinfoil hat might have been on, but it can come off now because we realize, no, there, there's no real conspiracy theory here. This is really just a somebody is working to keep these environments present because somebody is benefiting. And I think you're right. I think people sit around with these rape kits untested, either through bureaucratic negligence or a willing participation. And uh, it, I don't think it could have gotten to a place of 250,000 uh, rape kits when every criminal case that is filed needs that evidence. And for there to be a systemic obvious black hole of where that evidence is going and not coming out of, uh, that, that only feels like the system working as it's designed to work. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Um, Sean Hamilton, I, I, I've been keeping you an hour. I, we're going to have you back several times in, in April. This is an important topic. Get the book. Um, when your partner says hashtag me too, um, listen, to this station because we're going to be talking about this a lot. This is an important issue. It's generational. It covers like as many as six and seven generations. And unless somebody has got the intestinal fortitude to stop it, it's going to continue. And uh, we need to stop it. We are all, we're better than this. We can, we can do better than this. And I'm so glad that Kristen is doing better and, uh, and is feeling good. And you're on a, you're a man on a mission and I applaud your mission. Um, congratulations. And thank you for doing it. Oh, thank you, sir. And thank you, Kevin, for, for having me on. And I look forward to coming back and, uh, continuing the conversation. Yes, indeed. We do. We haven't even scratched the friggin' surface. <laughs> that is true. That is so true. <laughs> there is so much. And Dr. Marty, I want to thank you for for coming on. She's our number one fan, and she's an an awesome lady. And uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your participation, Marty. I really appreciate it. And uh, um, Sean, I'll be in, we'll be in touch after this show, and we'll we'll book several more um, because April's going to be a big month for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day and hold on right where you are. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.